You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Welcome to Max's Island. I'm Tony, and in this episode, I chat with Gareth Durrant. Now, Gareth has a really interesting and unique experience about when he got his graduate business degree at an overseas university, with all the learning in a foreign language. You'll be astounded at the challenge, so sit back and get ready to be amazed. Well, Gareth... Welcome to Max's Island. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Glad to be here. It's a lovely island. <laughs> Hope you didn't get wet when you no. got off the boat. No, more good. Yeah. So Gareth, for our listeners, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us one interesting thing about you that might give our listeners a better idea. Sure. Um, so my name is Gareth Durrant. I currently work for an organisation uh, called DSIL, Designing for Social Innovation and Leadership. Um, I'm essentially a social designer, so I help design uh, social movements, uh, but also my background's public health, um, so anything that involves uh, programs, services, clinics, nurses, doctors, I love. Uh, something interesting about me, um, I am currently learning Bulgarian, because wow. uh, in, Bulgarian. The, in the near future, um, I'll be using um, Bulgaria as a base um, so trying to kind of uh, dabble in the world of uh, global nomad uh, with one foot here in Perth and one foot in Bulgaria. Is it easy? No. No. But it's, but, but it, it sounds it, like it might not be. But it is fun. It is. I, I, I had no idea how fun it would be. It's so foreign, so weird, um, and uh, lots of... Um, lots of very strange sounds are coming out of my mouth, but um, it's quite glorious. And I'm, I've, I've got a, a tutor that I found here, and she is uh, quirky and uh, strict, and that's all. That's what you want in a Bulgarian good. teacher, I think. Good, good. Mm. I will look. I look forward to um, uh, your first opportunity to to speak it to the locals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it you probably won't go you. well, but that's okay. <laughs> so, Gareth. You're on Max's Island. You've come to tell us a story about that one time, or one of the stories that, um, or one time in your life where you said, hey to the world, 
I'm going to do this, or you went against the flow. Perhaps you can give us a, a bit of an intro to, to that story and we can talk about it. Yeah, I, what always comes to mind when, when people ask me about, uh, you know, uh, your greatest achievement or something, you know, that people might not know about you, I, I kind of go straight to uh, my time in Taiwan. So I, um, I grew up in Perth. Um, after high school, I went to Taiwan on exchange. Um, and it was just meant to be a gap year. So one year staying with a homestay, learning Chinese, going to a Taiwanese high school, that kind of stuff. Um, after that year, I kind of got a little bit hooked and uh, ended up getting a scholarship to study in Beijing. So I added another year to that. Um, and I was studying um, uh, for a year at Beijing Normal University. And by that time, I kind of spent close to two years speaking and living in Chinese, um, in the Chinese speaking world. Um, and it didn't make any sense to come back to Australia to um, either do an Asian studies degree or you know continue my Chinese. Um, so I just thought I would take a leap and I would apply as just a international student um, at the local university in Taipei. So the, the logic, although it was flawed, um, was that instead of coming back to Australia and, you know, learning Chinese or continuing Chinese, I would simply learn other things uh, in Chinese uh, at uh, a school in Taipei. So I signed up for um, a BA, so business administration, but um, all my classes were uh, in Mandarin. I was lucky enough to also get a scholarship for that. So the Taiwanese government are very generous. Um, to kind of uh, motivate people to come and learn Chinese but also do undergraduate and masters and PhDs in Taiwan. What I didn't really realize is that two years um, of language study does not equip you um, to study at university level. I don't think you know my 18 years of English equipped me to study at <laughs> a university level um, in Australia either. Um, so it was a real hard slog and um, it was a four-year degree, and it took me five years. I failed a lot. First year was particularly um, brutal. Um, but essentially, um, yeah, my, my, my go-to is always this, this time when I, without really thinking it through and without kind of considering the fact that, you know, I was 20 or 18 or something, um, and you know, didn't really have any support networks, and was not you know ethnically Chinese, and did not have an extensive background. Was about to embark on an undergraduate um, there, um, kind of uh, on my own, um, and you know, thought about quitting a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, you know, got a a diploma, and I have a, quite a number of stories of all, all my failures in that space. Um, but ultimately, it was a triumph in the sense that I I I, um, I stuck it out and probably was one of the very few Australian, you know's that have um, studied and graduated from, from that university in, in Chinese. Was there a pivotal moment when you thought, oh, actually, I'm going to get there now? Um, every semester was a roller coaster. Yeah. So I would start every semester with a lot of, um, yeah, just a lot of um, enthusiasm, and then it would slowly chip away as mid midterm and um, and and finals uh, approached. There's a couple of things like milestones that really got me. One was um, I started to 
um, I started to take classes in the gender studies department that were electives. Um, and suddenly uh, I realized that often the barrier wasn't necessarily my ability to speak Chinese or write Chinese. Um, because, you know, obviously it's quite an intense process um, and I spent a lot of time preparing, um, you know, in the library and whatnot. Um, it was actually the kind of um, educational culture. So um, in the gender studies department, you could write an essay, I could think about it, I could think about how I wanted to express myself and I got decent marks in there. In the business department, if I couldn't balance the accounting sheet I got zero right like it was just a really different way of doing things Um, and similarly um, the biggest obstacle was calculus so I had um, it was a required course as part of the business department and I failed it five years in a row so I took it every year Um, and that was when you you know you would show your working and even if you showed your working but made a small mistake the entire thing would be a zero like there's no part marks in Taiwan Um, so when I started to excel in other areas in terms of like history, humanities and other things, um, in the gender studies department, I realized it wasn't just, you know, my inability to be perfect in Chinese. It was really hard for me to retrain myself in a more, um, you know, kind of traditional education model. Um, last year, summer school. So this is after failing essentially five times in a row and then having, to stay on for the summer school bit of calculus, I finished the exam and walked out with like an inkling that I probably nailed it this time, but wasn't you know willing to um, you know jump for joy just yet. And at the end of that, um, what they do uh, is just print out your name, student number, and your score on an A3 size paper and just put it on the in the hallway. And then you all rush up because everyone texts each other that the scores are out. Um, and so I went up there and checked my name against my student number and checked my score and it was 61 or something like that it was like 62 just barely making because 60 is a pass mark that's the other thing 50 is not a pass 60 is a pass um and then i was really happy but then all that anxiety um kind of sunk in and i walked away going like what if i didn't pair it up correctly like what if i looked at someone else's score (laughs) to number and so i actually um ended up walking off campus, finding the first news agency, buying the biggest ruler I could find, walking back to the hallway, and actually like, you know, like a plumber, making sure that I got the exact, that one up. <laughs> and when I, when, I, when I finally, you know, did that, I was like, yes, all right, now I think I, I can actually um, uh, finish this off. But yeah, it was a very long slog, and there were a lot of moments like that where I didn't think I would, uh, yeah, pass or, or, or make it. And what were the um, teachers like? Were they supportive, or you've just said that, you know, it's... In some cases, it's um, it's zero or a hundred percent sort of thing. There's there's no in betweens, and um, so were they helpful? Um, really mixed bag. The gender yeah. again, it, it was almost straight down the middle. The gender studies and like anthropology and all all of the kind of humanities and social sciences were really interested in having diverse perspectives yeah. in their classroom, and they were really happy that. Um, Taiwan was um, recruiting international students from all over the world to come and um, obviously learn and then debate and, and what have you. The business studies department were very traditional and just needed um, you know people to answer questions and mm. just um, which is sad because business should also be innovative and, and all of those yeah. kind of things. But you know this was this was um, 20, 2005 to two thousand and ten and it just wasn't that way. And the most common thing that was said to me when I walked into um, 
uh, a classroom was kind of kind of. Um, which means like, oh, I think this uh, student is lost. <laughs> so like every time I walked in, I'd be like, oh no, I'm not actually lost. I'm third year. Um, I'm meant to be here. Um, this is my student number and whatever. And they would just look at me confused as in why, why are you here? Yeah. Um, which was weird also because it's, there's such a culture of being an international student. There's a lot of my classmates who went on to do their masters or, you know, in high school wanted to do their undergraduate abroad um, but for some reason and, and we do this in Australia as well we don't think about it the other way around we think about international students coming to study in Australia mm. we don't think about apart from short-term exchange we don't think about students you know um, going overseas to study yeah for I, five years yeah no. I mean I don't understand why you would do like a European European studies degree in in Australia when you could yeah. just go to free university in Germany yeah you know yeah. like it just and, and that's a pretty extreme way of looking at things. And obviously there's lots of barriers and other things um, in other people's lives. But um, it's the idea of going it alone and studying overseas at a young age was not on my radar at all until I had made a few other steps. But I wonder what it would be like if in your student counselling department in high school, they said, well, have you ever thought of moving to Germany? You know, like, yeah. or, or whatever it is, you know, like, if you want to do development, well, why don't you go to the University of Kenya? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, get into it and, and see what you can do. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think we're, we're there yet uh, as a culture or, or as, at least schools aren't. And what about the, your fellow students? You said there was other international students there, but also the locals. Um, mm. Where did you find your, your tribe and those that supported you and, and those that took you in? So there was, there was a, a really great mix. So luckily enough, I, I did go to high school there for that one year. So there were a few graduates from my high school that we were good friends with. First year, I lived in the dormitory and there was one person in a room of four um, that, that I really connected with and we're still very good friends. Um, and essentially, it was, it was the um, social studies and anthropology and all, all those uh, sociology uh, departments that I met through electives and other things that were very much my godsend. I, <laughs> my, my business apartments were very competitive. Yeah. So um, in the beginning, because I was such a, an appalling student, um, no one really wanted to be in a group with me, which is totally understandable in that context. And then in like third or fourth year, like last when we were finishing up, we started to use a lot more English texts and case studies so we would use like Harvard case studies and things like that and they wouldn't spend all their time translating it they would just give the material in English and then suddenly I became an asset because you know, <laughs> I could read it quickly and, and move it forward and, and do these kind of things so suddenly I was very popular in the last uh, last year or two um, but yeah it was it was a really mixed bag and um, I was pretty lucky that I had um, mates from high school, mates from other departments, mm. you know, mates that I would meet, you know, in the city somehow. Um, but yeah, I was deeply, deeply connected. I mean, I've spent, I spent more of, um, you know, my kind of, uh, the beginning of my adult life, you know, being called Wu Zhongyan, which is my Chinese name, um, than it was Gareth. Like it's just, it, and it, many years later, it feels like such a, um, a mirage, if you will. Yeah. Uh, um, just because, it's not always um, a predominant part of my work now. Um, but yeah, I just had this incredible, you know, I guess uh, five years in 
Taiwan, there's an additional one in Beijing. There was my high school year. There's seven years of my life that I was living and breathing this, and then you know went on to do very different things afterwards. Do you go back often? Um, every couple of years when I can. I'm still really good friends with a lot of my friends. Weirdly, I, so I just went to Paris. Um, uh, it was part of a, a work thing, but then I tagged on a long weekend, and I had um, lunch with uh, a French girl, French woman who was. Um, on exchange same year as me she married a Taiwanese guy and then we just had this weird three-way conversation in English French and, and Chinese and um, you know this is this is years and years later and equally I met up with a Chinese colleague and um, also someone that went to my, my my same university so I mean a lot of my friends travel but yeah I, I still get to see them overseas um, from time to time which was really exciting mm. and how did you um from a cultural point of view, um, get influenced by the Taiwan versus mm. China, main, mm. mainland China, um, you know, friction that's there. Yeah, it's interesting because my first uh, look, experience, whatever, of China was just of Taiwan. Mm. And so I just extrapolated and assumed that it would be very similar, of, although I do know the history and the culture. Then moving to Beijing, it was a huge culture shock. Um, and it was very difficult to kind of work out. And I had a lot of, um, I mean, I have a very strong Taiwanese accent. So it's it's like when you learn, you know, uh, Spanish in Mexico, people know that you learned it in Mexico, oh, you know, right. like I learned yeah. um, my Chinese in Taiwan and that's quite clear. And so when I was in Beijing, everyone would try and correct me, not necessarily on the basis of, of correct pronunciation, but on the basis of this is how people speak in Beijing as opposed to Taiwan. Um, and I always resisted that a lot. And so um, that was not so easy. Um, but even now, I I have a lot of... I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time um, in um, recent years supporting Chinese activists on the ground. So working with a lot of um, mainland Chinese activist community who are both doing regional work but also uh, national work. I have a deep love for, for who they are and what they're up against and, and what have you. And they can also, you know contain multitudes which is you know it's important for them to move you know whatever it is HIV trans rights whatever they're working on environmental rights that forward feel proud to be who they are as a as a person and as a Chinese person and still critique the government where it's warranted and other things so you know I have a softer view of it now working with some really cool people on the ground but in the beginning I just saw them as two completely different areas and found it really hard to transition to living and working in, in mainland China because it was just so different yeah perhaps I can ask you a question about that obviously very topical at the mm. moment AB, uh, on Four Corners last night mm. was the the show on Tiananmen Square mm. and interviewed a number of activists from the time who are still alive and, and um, sort of recounted their uh, their experiences and where they are now. So activism in China mm. um, and, you know, you were there quite a long time after um, Tiananmen Square. What's the... Where does it happen, mm-hmm. and and how effective is it from a point of view of actually getting things changed? I think uh, so. One of the milestones that's happened most recently is uh, the foreign NGO law as well as the charity law. So they're two separate laws that have come in. One is meant to be uh, regulating and 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 kind of. Um, uh, 
prohibiting certain work by local domestic charities and the other one is to prohibit any kind of foreign influence including money or resources to support local activism on the ground um, and some of these laws well both of these laws have things like if you do local research about a particular human rights issue or whatever issue here and you publish it say in English first through you know human rights watch or something like that that's seen as um selling state secrets so it's not just um it's not just your activism and activities they've kind of upped the ante wow. on certain things and if you've taken a grant from the swedish embassy or you've taken a grant from you know uh, some foundation in the u.s to support capacity building on the ground you're seen as taking foreign currency for nefarious you know um, actions and stuff like that so it's still um, effective and there are still vibrant, interesting communities, but there is a shrinking civil society space which comes from changes of legislation, intense mm. resources being put towards um, the Public Security Bureau, which is essentially um, you know, federal police that polices um, uh, nationals and locals and stuff like that. So you've got kind of like policy and legislation that you know, constrains you. You've got like deeply... Um, deeply well-resourced um, people looking at every every move that you make, every financial transaction that you do, things like that. Um, and then obviously like strong censorship online and things like mm. that. So any sphere that you're looking at is shrinking and there's less ability to do the work. Um, that said, everyone that I've ever worked with is extremely resourceful and they still will make... Um, strides or even just quiet work where quiet work needs to happen um, I think also there was a time where you would engage international organisations to put pressure on China to fix a local or domestic issue mm. and that kind of stuff yeah. whereas I think given that these new foreign NGO laws has forced a lot of organisations to register they're kind of doing more of that quiet work and within the machine type work where they'll work closely with local governments and other things to suggest and influence in other ways without necessarily internationally publicly shaming them on the world stage yeah so there's there's a lot of that going on but yeah i mean i'm sure that's a very simplified version yeah, of it but i was um slowly less optimistic as i saw you know this new law come in and 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 really seeing um the organizations really not being able to you know seek funding where funding you know was cut off you know you you wouldn't get you're not going to get government funding to critique the government in china obviously yeah. right yeah. um so they have to be very very resourceful but hey maybe this is also you know um a time where survival of the fittest they will be super strategic they will learn a lot of things mm. and in fact the fact that they've survived until now and still surviving means that they're probably very resilient or they're sure to be very resilient yeah yeah, yeah. great so just before we wind up, um, going back to, to Taiwan, mm. um, what advice would you give? And you sort of have already hinted at that with, um, you know, why would, why would less people take the opportunity to study um, abroad, especially if they're studying a, um, a history of a, or a foreign country or something like that. So what's your advice to somebody? Um, and, and if they did something like your experience... Is there any clues to make it a little easier? I think, um, 
I think there's a couple of things. One is um, if you're going to do something that's pretty bold and pretty kind of out there, I almost suggest not thinking about it too much because you mm. probably won't do it. Yeah. So if there's an inkling about something bold or audacious that you could do, just go ahead and do it and kind of mumble your way through. And if at the end, you know, you decide that that was a, you know, silly mistake, that's okay too. I was fueled by a strong, deep desire that I wanted what that meant for me, which was a kind of culmination of my experiences and efforts in learning Chinese to master it to a university level, to be able to speak at mm. a you know a professional level and go through that experience. Um, so that kind of fueled me all the way through, and I didn't feel like um, I had made a mistake, although although it was hard. So definitely number one, don't think about too much. Um, but at the same time, if you are playing with um, a bold if you're playing with any idea try on a bolder adaptation of said idea so if you if you're talking you know to someone and they're like um you know i'm thinking of going for this job because it's in this department all right all right what's the like extreme extrapolation of that well actually it's starting this company and changing the sector in this way mm. like i like to play with the extremes and maybe you'll like you'll fall somewhere else yeah. um and i think that's worth playing with Good. Well, Gareth, thanks for joining us on the island. Um, I know that you're um, doing so many things with DSIL and, of course, you're going to Europe and doing stuff at UWA. Is there anything you want to plug to our listeners, um, something that's um, of interest with you, for you at the moment or some work that you're doing that our listeners might be interested in? You can check out dsilglobal.com. It has a range of free resources. We also run a course uh, in August every year, which is an executive leadership course that teaches forward a lot of these ideas of being bold, being innovative, but also looking at uh, amping up your social impact. Great, so I give you the opportunity to sign off. English, Chinese, or Bulgarian. I'm not that good at Bulgarian, so I'm just going to say zaijie and goodbye. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks. He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way.
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone. 